You may be seated. If you'd please turn in your copy of God's Word to uh, the Gospel of Mark. We are continuing our sermon series through uh, the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we will be finishing off uh, chapter 15 uh, this morning, uh, looking at verse 40 through 47. Uh, just a brief introduction. Um, we do have one more week left in Mark. We will be looking only at verses 1 through 8. Uh, you probably have in your Bible verses 9 through 20. There are brackets around that. I will probably tell you in your Bible that, that, uh, that those verses are actually uh, not found in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, there is sufficient evidence to show that that is, in fact, the case. Uh, that verses 9 through 20 of uh, Mark 16 do not belong uh, to the original. And so uh, we will end where uh, Mark's inspired word ends in verses 1 through 8. Now, I'm going to speak more to that next week. That is not to say that you shouldn't read verses 9 through 20. I'll speak more uh, to the fact that though it probably is not the inspired word of God through Mark, Nevertheless, that does not mean there are not things that we can learn from it, but I just wanted to let you all know where we are going, where we are tracking. Uh, We have two more uh, Sundays in Mark uh, today and uh, next week, and I'll speak more uh, to the reasoning as to why we will neglect uh, verses 9 through 20 next week. Uh, With that introduction out of the way, let us now give attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired an inerrant word beginning in verse 40 of Mark chapter 15. There are also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? O Father in heaven, that we would see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, even here in this last stage of his humiliation as we consider the lifeless body of the God-man, God incarnate, Jesus Christ, impress upon us the depths that our Lord has gone to in order to save us from our sins. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the name 
of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today we learn of Christ's burial after he has died. And this burial in many ways serves as a transition uh, to Christ's resurrection. Oftentimes when we talk about Jesus Christ and his person and his work, we will distinguish it between two different states, a state of humiliation and a state of exaltation. Christ's state of humiliation is that, that state where Christ is, has become a man and, and he's born in a manger because there's no place for him in the inn. And, and it, it, it discusses Christ as a man who suffers and who is mocked, who is beaten, who is ridiculed, who suffers on the cross and who dies. And this here really is the last stage of his humiliation, uh, the grave, Christ being buried. It is the last stage in his humiliation, and it serves really as the transition to what we will see next week is Christ's exaltation, which begins with his resurrection, ends with his ascension at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, and will one day be consummated when Christ comes again. So today we see this burial that in many ways serves as a, as a transition from Christ's humiliation, his humiliated state, to his exalted state three days later in his resurrection. And it is worth considering that all four Gospels take the time to speak about Christ's burial, which tells us that it is a very important aspect of Christ's work. Not only is the burial of Christ a prominent theme in the Gospels, but we see that it is a prominent theme in really the Orthodox confessions and creeds throughout church history. For example, the Nicene Creed states he suffered and was buried. The Apostles' Creed states he was crucified, died, and was buried. And this formal sort of creedal, confessional declaration that we find really in all the famous Orthodox confessions and creeds throughout church history is really in perfect keeping with what we read in our unison reading of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 15. There, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Notice what Paul says here. This is something that Paul has received. And it is most likely a long-standing formal confession that had been swirling throughout the churches in Paul's day, and it has come to Paul, and he has received this formal sort of confession about Jesus' person and work, and now he is delivering it to the churches that God has commanded him to preach the gospel too. So this is most likely a formal confession that made its way through the early church in Paul's day. So we need to ask the question, why is this so important that the burial of Christ makes it into all four gospels, that it seems to be included in the, in the formal confession of the early church in, in Paul's day and and that it seems to be included in all the Orthodox confessions and creeds throughout church history. Why is this so important, the burial of Christ? Well, I think the reason is, is because what burial represented in the first century is very much what burial today represents for us in the 21st century. 
And that is really what we might say the finality of death. The finality of death. The burial finalizes, we might say, the death process. It places a capstone, a seal on the death process. When one is buried, you know that that person is really and truly dead. I remember going to a funeral of a friend of mine who had died suddenly and and tragically, and, and at the wake there was an an open casket, and I remember constantly having my eyes glance at that open casket, and I I thought that at any moment, my friend was just going to pop up and join in, and I was going to get to converse with my friend. Even at the funeral, though, it was a a closed casket. He was was right there. He, He seemed like he was still with us, but at the burial, it finalized his death. Friends that came in from different parts of the country got on their planes and went home. When he was buried, when he was placed in the ground, it came to the realization for all of us that my friend is really and truly dead. The burial of Jesus tells us that Jesus really and truly died. Heidelberg Catechism, question 41, why was Christ buried? Simple answer, to prove that he was really dead. There's an important personal pronoun in verse 46 and verse 47 of our passage. Did you catch it? Did you catch that personal pronoun? I don't think it's something that should be lost on us. Verse 46, and taking him down wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. Verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. That's an important personal pronoun that Mark is giving us there that we shouldn't pass by. He doesn't say it was buried as though it's some sort of suit. The body of Christ is some sort of suit that Jesus dons for a period of time, and then he leaves it, and it's just inconsequential. No, he was buried. He was laid. It is the body of the God-man. It is the body of God incarnate that is laid in a tomb. It is the body of the second and last Adam being placed in a tomb, really and truly dying as our last federal head, our representative. So that we can say with Paul, we have been buried with Christ in baptism. We have truly and really died to sin if we be in Christ by faith. The death process that is the result of sin from last breath to burial has been met in full. So that you and me and our loved ones, if our lives be hidden in Christ, our hope doesn't end when we are buried, but our hope continues even as we sleep in the ground, because that first fruit of the resurrection harvest, Jesus Christ, has been lifted up after his burial 
and united to Christ, even as we sleep in the ground, even as your loved ones whose lives are hidden in Christ sleeps in the ground. We are assured of resurrection life because Christ was buried and rose again. And so the burial of Christ is not some inconsequential event. We often talk about if somebody were to ask you, if somebody were to ask me, I'll admit, what's important about Christ? Well, he died and he resurrected. We often pass over this, but we shouldn't. The Gospels want us to know that Christ really and truly died. He was buried. It is the capstone of the death process. It is the final seal of Christ's humiliation as he is buried in a tomb. And like any other burial that we might go to today, like any other funeral, it is a sad occasion. It is a dark moment. However, within this grave and dark episode, there are two bright lights that shine forth. And I want us just to focus for the remainder of our time this morning on those two bright lights. First, the women, and then second, uh, Joseph of Arimathea. So first, the women. First, the women. Verse 40, as Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, Mark tells us there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph and Salome. Uh, Mary Magdalene uh, was a woman that the Lord delivered from demon possession back in Luke chapter 8. We can read of of that exorcism, of that that demon possession for Mary Magdalene, and and since then had become a disciple uh, of Christ. Uh, Mary, the mother of James and, and Joseph, we really don't know much about. The only thing we know about is that about her, as we will see uh, next week, is that she is together with uh, Mary Magdalene as one of the women who will come early on Sunday to anoint uh, the body of Jesus and and witness that that tomb that is empty. Uh, Salome, uh, Salome, according to Matthew 27, verse uh, 56, was the wife of Zebedee and the mother of the disciples James and John. And these three women are highlighted here by Mark as, as those that, that witness the death of Christ. Verse 41, we are told that when he was in Galilee, there were other women that ministered to Jesus. It is no accident, I think, that Mark is highlighting the positive role that women played in the life of Jesus. This really is in stark contrast to the way the disciples are so often uh, portrayed in Mark's gospel, as we have seen, as we have trekked through Mark's narrative. They have scattered and left Christ when he was arrested, just as, as Jesus predicted. All of them but one came to the cross to, to witness their Lord's crucifixion. We know in John's gospel that, that John was the one disciple that was there to witness Christ's crucifixion. But other than John, the other 11 scattered. Peter has, as we saw a few weeks back, denied Christ three times. At the very moment, he is being condemned and tried by the Sanhedrin. Yet here are these women who have been with Jesus since the beginning, who don't leave him in his most dire time of need, 
but follow him all the way to the cross. And not only to the cross, but verse 47 tells us all the way to his burial site. We are told in verse 41 that they ministered to him. They ministered to him. This is the same word that is, that is used of the angels back in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, after Jesus was tempted by Satan for 40 days and the, the angels, angels ministered to Jesus. As Jesus dealt with difficult days, and certainly there were plenty, as he dealt with hardship, these women were by his side, comforting him, rendering assistance to him. This word minister is a word that really means humble service. It's a word that would, would often be used of a slave and, and his service to, to their master. It's a service that is, is often unseen. It's, it's a quiet service. This has been a quiet service that is now only being brought to our attention here at the end of the Gospel of Mark. And in the most general of ways, they ministered to him. It's a quiet, behind-the-scenes ministering. There are many women that are in this church that are doing quiet, faithful service that often goes unnoticed. It's not front and center. It's not here at the pulpit. It's not rendering decisions as officers within the church. But do you see what Mark is highlighting here for us? Because it is quiet, it in no way diminishes its value. It in no way makes it a lesser service. Rather, what Mark has done in this gospel is shown the bright light of this quiet service of these women in stark contrast to the men who are, who are arguing and bickering over who is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Simply because it is quiet, Mark shows us it doesn't mean that it should go unrecognized. On the contrary, the quietness and the humbleness of the service is the reason for the recognition. It's the reason for the recognition. It's the fact that it is humble and quiet and behind the scenes, and it plays in such stark contrast to the women or to the men who want to be recognized and bicker and argue over who is the greatest. It is because it is quiet that it is commended. Think about the woman back in chapter 12, that, that woman, the, the, the poor widow. She comes and she has those two coins and that's all she has. And she places those two coins in the offering box. And you might recall we mentioned then that that offering box, that receptacle, would have been a brass receptacle so that you could have heard the offering that each person gave. And rich people would throw down hordes of coins down this brass receptacle and it would make all this noise. But this woman just throws down two pitiful, measly coins, making a pitiful, quiet sound. Yet it is Jesus that exalts her and her quiet service. Her quiet service. In other words, what Mark is not saying is this. Women need to have all the same roles as men, 
and placed front and center so that their service can become louder and more recognizable. No, that would take away the very reason for the commendation in the first place. That would snuff out the light of these women as they are being presented by Mark throughout this gospel. It is the fact that they are unrecognizable. That is the reason they are being commended. If faithful, quiet, humble service from women or anyone else is going unrecognized, what needs to change is not the quiet, humble servants. What needs to change is those of us who are blind to that quiet, humble service. I find it so unique. I find it so odd and and somewhat ironic as as the feminist movement has infiltrated the church and and we are telling women that they need to come and, and be and have the same roles as men. And what we are actually doing is we are giving them a temptation towards that which is not commended, pride. It is the fact that they are humble. It is the fact that they do a behind the scenes service. That is the reason that Mark recognizes him. It is the reason why Jesus exalts the poor widow with two coins. What Mark is saying in his gospel to his reading audience is don't lose sight of humble service. Don't let the quiet, humble service of women go unrecognized. Commend it as I do. See it as the bright light that Christ sees it as. Don't force the quiet, humble, behind-the-scenes service to change But we need to change in recognizing it and commending it. Because what does it mean if we're unable to recognize quiet, humble service? It means that we are not in tune to humility. We are not in tune to the very chief character that is to be ours as those who are in Christ. And so we are to recognize humble service. We are to praise humble service that these women and many women in this church render. We are to recognize it, as Mark does, as our Lord does. So we see the bright light of these women in the midst of this grave situation here. Second, we see Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea. In verse 43, we are introduced to this man, Joseph of Arimathea, who is a member in high standing in the council and who comes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus so that he can bury him. Now, this is something that had to be done in in haste because evening was fast approaching, and it was the day before the Sabbath, as Mark here tells us. And for the Jewish people, sundown was really the beginning of the day, so he has to move quickly to get this burial in place. Uh, according to Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, it was against the law to leave a dead body hanging on a tree uh, overnight because it would bring a curse upon the land. It would be all the more reprehensible if it was hanging on the Sabbath day, which was fast approaching. Add to that that this is Passover week as well. So this must be done in haste. When Joseph asks Pilate for the body of Jesus, Pilate is surprised to hear that Jesus had already died. And the reason he is surprised there is because it was common 
for those that were crucified to hang on the cross for at least two, maybe even up to three days and die on their own hanging on the cross for two to three days. But Jesus, it seems, dies within a matter of hours, showing us that even in the midst of the pain, the spiritual and physical pain, God still rendered mercy unto Jesus on the cross. So here we, hearing that Jesus was already dead from the centurion, Pilate grants the corpse to Joseph. Now the reason Mark tells us that it took courage for Joseph to come and ask Pilate for the body of Jesus uh, is because it was highly irregular for a convicted, crucified revolutionary such as Jesus was accused of being uh, to receive a proper burial. What would often happen is they would leave that, that revolutionary hanging on the cross really as a sign and a symbol for anyone, any of the citizens that would walk by as a sign as to what would happen to you if you dared uh, to rebel against Rome. However, as we saw earlier with Jesus and his trial before Pilate, Pilate really didn't think Jesus was guilty of death and certainly not guilty of crucifixion. He did not feel that he was an insurrectionist, as we saw a few weeks back. And he was really frustrated with the Jewish people that they were forcing his hand to, to hand this man over to die and be crucified, who he thought to be innocent. So this is most likely sort of a jab at the Jewish people, a jab at the high priest, allowing for this burial to take place. So Joseph of Arimathea wraps Jesus in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. Now this linen shroud would have been very expensive uh, and tombs like the one Jesus is laid in were often only for wealthy people. And we know from elsewhere that this was most likely Joseph of Arimathea's own tomb that he himself had purchased for his burial. We are told in John 19's account that this is a new tomb that, that no one had ever been laid upon, that no one had ever been laid in. What would often happen in the first century is you would be in a tomb where there had been tons and tons of different dead bodies that had been transferred to other places, and they would put in more and more dead bodies into that same tomb. But here we learn that Jesus is in a tomb that no one has ever been laid in. It almost seems as though, though this is the end of his humiliation, the proper burial, the honorable burial, it seems is starting to give us a glimpse of that transition in to his exaltation. Jesus' body, it seems, is being treated with the utmost respect by Joseph. Apparently, there is some kind of stone which could be rolled into place. It was more than likely a disc-shaped stone about a yard in diameter, uh, which was placed in a wide slot cut into the rock. Since the groove into which the stone fitted slooped, uh, sloped toward the doorway, it would have been rather easy to close that stone and close the tomb as it sloped down toward the doorway. But to get that stone back up, it would uh, have to have the strength of at least several men. 
So the stage really is set for what we will read of next week in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 16. The powerful resurrection of Jesus Christ and that heavy stone being taken away so that the women can see that empty tomb. But for the remainder of our time, next week we will look at the resurrection and and the power of the resurrection and the power of that stone being being taken from its place. But for the remainder of our time this morning, I just want to say a couple of things about Joseph of Arimathea, uh, this man that treats Christ's lifeless body with such respect and honor. Uh, The first thing we should note is that Mark tells us he was seeking uh, the kingdom of God. He was seeking the kingdom of God. In Matthew's account, in Matthew 27, verse 57, he is called a disciple of Jesus. However, there's a problem here. Did you catch it? Maybe as I was going through, you thought to yourself, is he going to mention that? Did you catch what the problem is here, that he is a disciple and one who is seeking the kingdom of God? It tells us that he was a member of the council. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. The very council that condemned Jesus for being a blasphemer and ultimately condemned Jesus to death. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of, yet he was seeking the kingdom of God and he was a disciple of Christ, as Matthew tells us. And in the account of Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin in Mark 14, there is no voice in opposition. In fact, Mark will tell us that the whole council together condemned Jesus. We know nothing of Joseph of Arimathea there. So what are we to make of this? If he was looking for the kingdom of God, if he was a disciple of Christ, why didn't he speak up when he was being condemned? He's not only a member, Mark tells us he was a member of high standing. He was a respected member. What are we to make of this? The fact that clearly Mark tells us he was seeking the kingdom of God and Matthew tells us that he was a disciple. Well, I think John gives us the answer in his gospel. In John chapter 19, verse 38, John says, Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Christ, but secretly. For fear of the Jews, but secretly for fear of the Jews. It's interesting, isn't it? When we looked at that Christ's trial before the Sanhedrin a few weeks back, we mentioned that Peter is outside at that very moment denying his Lord. Well, here it seems that even inside during that trial, it seems that Jesus had a disciple who was denying him as Joseph stayed silent during the accusations, during the spitting, during the mocking, during the condemnation. Yet here, yet here he boldly and courageously puts his reputation on the line with his colleagues and handles the body of Jesus with with care and respect. What changed for him? I think we have to ask that question. We we have to ask that question. What changed for Joseph of Arimathea that that he would would be so bold here, put his reputation on the line when he wasn't willing to just moments earlier in, in, in the case with the Sanhedrin? What has changed for Joseph? 
Well, I think we can safely assume it was the witnessing of the cross. It was the witnessing of the way Jesus Christ died. There is power in the cross. There is, there is power in the death of Jesus Christ. It's what caused the centurion to say at the end of the passage last week, truly, this was the Son of God. It's what caused the thief on the cross to turn to Jesus and say, remember me in paradise. And it's what causes the secret disciple to now come out of the shadows and be bold for his Lord. The cross magnifies really the love of God in no other way. It magnifies the majesty and wonder of God's love and grace like nothing else. All the attributes of God, all the character of God that we see throughout Scripture coalesce and meet in Jesus Christ as he is hanging on the cross. And it breaks down defenses. It breaks down concerns of self-image and social status. It causes those who have ears to hear and eyes to see to crumble before God and to his son and say to the world, do to me what you will, but I will serve my Lord and my master. I think we spend far too much time thinking about God, trying to answer the difficult questions about God that often come to us in the Old Testament if we're honest with ourselves. We spend so much time trying to answer the difficult questions about God without seeing God through a cross-centered lens. God reveals himself most to us as the second person of the Trinity, God incarnate, hangs on a cross. It is where all the attributes of God coalesce and meet so that Christ can say his greatest glory is when he is apparently being defeated on the cross. And for those that see Calvary clearly, They can't help but confess their Lord and their master and serve him boldly. Joseph of Arimathea really tells us something about God's grace, doesn't he? John 12, verse 42 says, Many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. For they love the glory that comes from man more than they love the glory that comes from God. Joseph of Arimathea was one of those authorities that John is speaking of. In in John chapter 12, he he loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. And that that came out and that was on full display as as he was silent, as Jesus was condemned before the Sanhedrin. Yet how is Joseph remembered in the Gospels? As a disciple of Christ, as one who sought the kingdom of God and who treated Christ's body with dignity and respect. How powerful is the cross of Christ? It's so powerful that it can forgive a dying thief who moments earlier was mocking and deriding Jesus and then in one instant turns to his Lord and says, remember me. And like that, Christ turns to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. It's so powerful that it can make Joseph of Arimathea 
a member of the council that condemned Christ to death, it can cause him to be remembered in the annals of redemptive history in God's inspired word as one who searched for the kingdom of God, a disciple of Christ. Have you pondered how marvelous God's grace is? Have you considered these things? The powerful, the cross is so powerful, as we will see next week, that it vindicates the name of Jesus Christ so that he will be raised from the dead three days later. The power of the cross. When was the last time you, you contemplated Christ? It is the centerpiece of all of redemptive history. It is the centerpiece of God's revelation to his people. All of it makes sense when we look to the cross of Christ. And when we see it as it truly is, it breaks us down. And it causes us to serve Christ boldly to serve our master, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man who has hung on a cross for us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, not only your son, but the very second person of the Trinity. God himself, the one who the writer to Hebrews tells us is the exact imprint of your nature, the radiance of your glory, the word that was in the beginning, the very, the very sustainer of all of creation, as Paul tells us in Colossians 1, that very one that is the wisdom of God that created the heavens and the earth at the start, that one who is exalted above on high, who sits enthroned above heaven and earth as the second person of the Trinity. He has come down and he has become humble for us. And he has served to its bitter end, even to the grave, so that we have hope even as we are buried in death, that our lives are hidden in Christ, who has met the penalty for our sin in its fullness as he laid in a tomb. No, Father, we pray that as we contemplate such wondrous things, that like Joseph of Arimathea, you would make us bold for Christ, to go and, to, and to, to even face the shame that would be ours in a world that it seems has turned its back on Christ, because we know what he has done for us at the cross. Might you, through the proclamation of the cross here in this church, knit your spirit to that proclamation, turning us from our sins and to serve our Lord boldly and with joy and peace reigning in our hearts. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.